Our scripture lesson today comes from Acts chapter 9, one very powerful story, maybe one of the most powerful stories in the Bible outside of the Gospels. And so uh, we share in God's good word together. You'll share it with me. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. You have a call on your life. Did you know that? You have a call on your life. Every person on the planet has a particular call. There are certain things that only you can do. Certainly, if you're a part of a family, you you know this, that that you, for many of you, are the only uh, father or mother or sister or brother or son or daughter or cousin that your family has in that particular way, with your particular background, with your particular relationships and skill sets and background. You have a call. I have a call. Paul has a call. And the thing is, Paul was the most unlikely of people that anyone would have ever thought would become a Christ follower. Our sermon series is The Call. Um, It is inspired by the book by Reverend Adam Hamilton of our flagship church up in Kansas City, Church of the Resurrection. And so if you would like to know more and and go through that book in a small group setting, you can do that either at 915 or 1045. We've got classes running alongside the sermon series. Uh, If you'd like to be a part of that, we can help you get there. Uh, Today, we're going to start with Called by Christ, if you'll say that with me. Called by Christ. But here's the other part about a call. It's shaped by many. Will you say that with me? Shaped by many. You see, Saul, then Paul, was called by Christ, yes, but that's only part of the story. In particular, we want to see that he is shaped by his family of devout Jews, by the Roman culture, uh, by Gamaliel, by Ananias, and by Barnabas, and by the times that he lived. Now, you may love Paul, or you may hate Paul, but there's no denying the impact that Paul has had on the world. If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take those out. And, and one of the ways we want to start is if you look at the New Testament, 13 of the 21 New Testament letters were written by Paul. Uh, most of the New Testament, as we have it today, uh, was either written directly or influenced by Paul, this Saul of Tarsus. Uh, Reverend Adam Hamilton, who wrote the book, uh, is quoted as saying this, it could reasonably be argued that no other human apart from Jesus himself has had a greater impact on the world than Paul of Tarsus. And, and, and this Saul and then Paul would go to Turkey and to Greece and to Italy and to Syria, through Jordan, through Israel, most of it by foot, some of it by boat. It's really amazing if you think about the Roman Empire, the most powerful uh, authority that the world had ever seen. It was said that the sun never set on the Roman Empire. Uh, because it was so vast. And this is the culture in which Saul was growing up in. So who was Saul, if you're following along? He was raised in a Jewish home, that's your first blank, a Jewish home, and named after the first king of Israel. The first king. I mean, you don't get more Jewish than naming your kid after the king, the first king. Uh, You might remember Saul. We call him Tall Saul. He was very tall. Um, And then David after him, Solomon after him, and so on and so on. So this devout Jewish family names their child Saul after the first king. He's also a part, though, of a family who was known as Roman citizens. And so his Roman name was Paul. His Jewish name was Saul, after the first king, and his Roman uh, name was Paul. 
Now, it's easy to kind of just read over that, but one of the things at that time that you might want to know is that only 10% of the population of the Roman Empire were known as Roman citizens. Most never got citizenship. And so what that tells us about Paul's family is that they were likely very powerful or very wealthy. We know that they were business owners, uh, they were tent makers, and, and he gets into that family profession after a while. So he would have gone to the best schools, uh, would have learned the things that you would want young men and women to learn. And so as a young man, he would have studied Greek, he would have studied Greek philosophy, the Greek poets, rhetoric, logic, and, and probably about at age 13 as a young man, uh, he was then sent to Jerusalem. In the same way that we might send kids off to college uh, after, uh, they didn't have bar mitzvahs at, in that season of Judaism, but certainly when Jesus goes to the temple, he's about 12. And so we think that Paul would have been about 13 when he goes from Tarsus to Jerusalem, which is no small journey for a young man, to study under the finest of the rabbis of the time, a man named Gamaliel. And Gamaliel, we find in, in the New Testament, first of all, um, when the followers of Jesus um, are being persecuted, and the Jews come to um, him, to Gamaliel, and they say, well, what do we do about this uh, man Jesus and the people that are following him? And he says, well, if it's of man, don't worry about it. It'll fade away. But if it's of God, um, you can't stop it anyway. So don't worry about it. Now, this wisdom from Gamaliel all the way back in the very first days of Christianity uh, is still around us today. So in the church, when we're making decisions, we still refer back to the wisdom of Gamaliel. If it's just a, a man thing, then we're not going to worry about it. But if it's of God, it's going to happen because God is all-powerful and almighty and always good. And so we find Gamaliel in Acts 22. As a young man, Saul's devout religious family sent him to Jerusalem to study under this finest of rabbis, Gamaliel. Uh, and the scripture says it like this. Uh, this is Paul. He says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, Jerusalem, at the feet of Gamaliel, educated strictly according to our ancestral law, studying the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers, and being zealous for God, passionate for God, just as all of you are today. And then he says this, I persecuted this way, that's what Christians were called in the early days, people of the way, up to the point of death by binding both men and women and putting them in prison, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can testify about me. This is Paul. From then, I also received letters to the brothers in Damascus up in Syria, and I went there in order to bind those who were there and to bring them back to Jerusalem for punishment. This is what is recorded in the book of Acts about this young uh, Jewish man named Saul. Now, we need to be careful here because uh, when the Bible refers to the Jews, what they're really referring to is a subset, a very small section uh, of the Jews that were persecuting Jesus. Because you'd be reminded that Jesus was Jewish, all the disciples were Jewish, the people at the synagogue were Jewish, but there was a subset, a certain group of people that were trying to kill what they thought was heresy. They were trying to stamp it out because there was one God, right, not two, and God was not a human in their mind, God was God. And it's so holy you couldn't say his name or write it. And so for some human uh, out of a nowhere town named Nazareth to stand up and say, well, I'm him, they felt like they had to stop that. And so we need to be really careful because some people read Paul's writings here uh, and they use it for anti-Semitism, which is not appropriate at all. In the same way that you and I would not want to be judged by a handful of uh, KKK members down in southeast Oklahoma and, and what goes on there because they're Christians, right? You and I wouldn't want to be um, basically described in that way. Uh, in the same way, it's not fair to describe all Judaism, and certainly not Judaism today, uh, by a subset of folks persecuting the early way. And, and so we need to understand that the language around this is important and, and which 
Paul was writing in his time. So Saul was trained in this law in the school of Pharisees. Now, Pharisees were those people that separated themselves from anything that was not holy. And so if someone had any sort of sin in their life, a Pharisee would not have anything to do with them. Uh, That's why you have uh, the story of the Good Samaritan where the Pharisees are going to go all the way around because they didn't want to be defiled. It would have messed up their whole day. They'd have to go and get cleansed before they could get back to the temple or the synagogues. And so Pharisees were people who separated themselves from anything uh, that was unseemly. Now, before we get too harsh about Pharisees, it's really not all that different than what many of us around here in Edmond tell our kids. You know, when you go to school, hang out with the good kids. Don't hang out with the bad kids. Uh, and if the bad kids are doing this, you stay far away from it. And it's just kind of conventional wisdom. And, and Pharisees took that to the nth degree so that anybody who had any kind of problem, any sort of even deformity, if they were blind or uh, had missed a limb or had been harmed in some way, you weren't to have anything to do with them whatsoever. And that's hard for us to understand as Christians because Jesus came to change all of that. That he came for everyone, not just for a select few. And so in, I want you to think about this for a moment in your own background, that Saul now, we know, comes from a devout religious Jewish family. He's also a part of the, really the Roman aristocracy uh, and the Greco-Roman uh, world of thought. He also has been trained in the best schools, both in Greek and Roman ways, and also under the best of rabbis under Gamaliel. And all of this sets him up for the life that God is calling him to. I want you to think about your life. What's unique in your life that might be a part of your call? Uh, those of you who know me well know that I grew up in a pastor's home all around the state of Oklahoma. And so one of the things that was, was very difficult for me was I would be the new kid in school multiple times, not just once or twice, but year after year after year as dad would be assigned to different places around the state. And so I began to have a heart for that, and that's really what kept me out of ministry for a number of years because I didn't want to do that to my family. And, and the Lord placed on my heart a way to redeem that by being welcoming to everyone that would ever show up at Acts 2. And so you may wonder why it is that we have such a focus on the guests, such a focus for the first person that walks through the door. And that's simply part of my background because I know what it is to be outside. I know what it is to be left out or or in the cold or not accepted. And so at this place and this time, we will always be focused to the person who needs a place. So that in in the very things that we say at the beginning of church, we say we're we're here to help the non-religious or the non-active person, the people that don't yet have faith or don't yet have a church, and to welcome them and connect them to the community and to Christ. It's part of my background. It's part of who I am. And you have a call, you have a background, and and you can allow the Lord to redeem it. And oftentimes, it's the very places of pain that the Lord wants to turn that for good, if we will allow it. And so I want you to see how Paul describes himself um, in Philippians. He says, if anyone has reason to be confident in the flesh as a Pharisee, I have more. Now, flesh here simply means his own power and authority and ability. He was circumcised on the eighth day, which is what you would do as a good Jewish family, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the same tribe as King Saul, a Hebrew born of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, the very best, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, uh, trying to make it right. Uh, He saw himself uh, as, as orthodox, doing the right thing at the right time for the right reasons. As to righteousness under the law, he says he is what, friends? Blameless. In the NIV, it says that he is faultless. Can you imagine that? Someone who thinks that they are both blameless and faultless. How can that be? I'll tell you how. He was 20. (laughs) He was 20. It's very easy to see the world in black and white when you're young. You have these ideals and theories. And this is what Paul said. He said, I'm going to be the very best you can be. And he was blinded by his ambition. That he was going to be somebody. He came from a good family, a good town. 
and, and he was the best of the best. Uh, and we would say it like he was on the honor roll. He was straight A's. He was going places. He was one to watch. He was, you know, top 40 under 40, all that kind of business. He was the guy. And it was his ambition that drove him to murder. He would step on anyone that he needed to and even kill them if it moved him up the chain. And it did. You see, in Acts 7, Paul is described as Saul before he meets Jesus. We see the destruction that our own blind ambition, blind ambition, can get us. But filled with the Holy Spirit, Stephen, the first martyr of the church, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Talking about Jesus. But they covered their ears, those who were persecuting the early faith. And with a loud shout, they all rushed together against Stephen. And then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named what? Saul. You see, Saul didn't have to actually throw a stone, but he made sure that it happened. And so this fact that the witnesses would come and lay their coats at Saul's feet meant Saul was the man. He was the one. He was the executioner. And while they were stoning Stephen, Stephen prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Perfect gentleness and holiness. Stephen really recites the words that Jesus said on the cross. And then Stephen kneels down and cries out in a loud, uh, loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he died. And Saul, this Saul, this up-and-comer, approved of their killing him. And that day a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. And then that'll lead them up to Damascus. But Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women. He committed them to prison. Now, I don't know why in 20 years I never studied stoning, maybe because it's just so brutal. And, but, you know, I, I kind of thought or, or seen people, you know, they have the little stones and they kind of throw it at them. And I think, God, that's got to take a long time. Um, how, how does that work? And, and so, depending on which oral tradition uh, you follow, uh, or which scholars you follow, uh, it is true that in the law you had to have two witnesses for capital punishment in Judaism. Uh, it's a good law. We might want to revisit that. Um, two witnesses. And uh, for the capital punishment, what they did was it was the two witnesses that killed the person. And so, uh, many scholars now believe that uh, they had actually gotten this down to a pretty fine art. They knew that if you could go up to the second story uh, of a home or a building, um, or you'd built a platform that was more than 10 feet tall, um, you could throw a person uh, off of that, uh, and they wouldn't die, and they wouldn't be dismembered. If you went above about two stories, uh, they might lose a limb, and that was not okay in Judaism. Uh, you wanted to keep the body whole. And so um, many scholars now believe that they would take someone about two stories up, they would throw them off. Uh, they would be uh, wounded, but not mortally wounded. They would have two people then hold them down face up, and they would take the two witnesses, and it wouldn't be a stone, it would be a boulder, something that would require two people that heavy to lift it. And they would lift it up, uh, two stories up, and then they would throw it on the person's head or chest. Pretty gruesome. That, that's how stoning would happen. And then if that didn't kill them, it didn't always kill them, then everybody else got to join in with their stones to finish them off. Uh, but that's the way stoning happened. And this is what Saul approves. This is how he moves forward in his career. 
at 20 years of age. This is what he thinks is the right thing. And so um, I want to show you the map about what's going on here. So Paul grows up in Tarsus. Uh, he comes down to Jerusalem for schooling. And then um, he persecutes the church in Jerusalem. And, and so the church scatters and goes up to Damascus. And now he's on his way to Damascus. It's not just enough to root it out in Jerusalem. But he wants to know any person who might speak the name of Jesus in any synagogue in the area. So he goes up to Damascus to find them and to put them in chains and to drag them back to Jerusalem and put them in prison. That is his goal. That's what his life's goal is about. So he makes sure and keeps the purity of the faith. But then there's this one thing that happens, and that is he encounters Jesus. And of course, that's the thing we know about our faith, that when we encounter Jesus, everything changes, at least it's supposed to. And so you have to kind of look at your life and say, is my life any different before or after I say that I met Jesus? It did for Paul. It certainly did for Paul. So in Acts chapter 9, we find this story. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and he asked them, he actually goes to them and asks them for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found anyone who belonged to the way, anybody following Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem back for prison and trial. Now he was going along and approaching Damascus on that road and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Some people think it was lightning, literally getting struck by lightning. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he asked, who are you, Lord? And the reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Go on to Damascus, Jesus is saying to him, through the Spirit. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice, but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. He was blind now. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, how many days? Three days, he was without sight, blind, and neither ate nor drank. Some might say it was a forced fast, if you will. Now, I think that if I'm Paul and that just happened to me, I'm not eating anything because I think it's poison. I mean, I'm scared out of my mind. Everything I thought I've known, everything that happened, I mean, he, he might even wonder if, if Jesus is still really alive and after him now because he's persecuting me. He doesn't know what's going on. Saul was blind for three days. He didn't eat or drink anything. He's scared out of his mind, and everything he thought he knew, everything he was so sure of just moments before is now on its head, 180 degrees different. And, and that's the truth about our life, isn't it? That sometimes we must become blind to what we think we know in order to see what is right in front of us. Maybe that's happened to you. I know that's happened to me. Where you're just so sure you know exactly the way your life is going. You know exactly what's going on. And before you know it, that wasn't true at all. Sometimes we have to become blind to be able to see what's really right there in front of us. The reality of it. But notice that, and this is true I think for all of us. That it's not simply a one-on-one -on -one faith experience between Jesus or a blinding light and Saul that becomes Paul. No, it's not. It requires other people. You see, our, our faith is a relational faith, and it requires an unlikely hero. Will you say that with me? An unlikely hero. And his name was Ananias. Now, Ananias is aware of who Saul is, and he's afraid. God calls him, and he doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to have anything to do with Saul because he knows that Saul is on his way to arrest him. He's like, are you kidding me, God? This guy, I, I mean, we know of him. He has already murdered Stephen. A perfectly good and honest and upright guy. He's, we've already seen him murder him, and now he's coming to get me and the rest of us, and you want me to go to him. So the Bible describes it this way. Now, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he answered, Here I am, Lord. 
The Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Now, that's pretty specific. Street, address, name. I mean, God, if he wants you to do something, he'll make it clear for you. And at this moment, uh, he is praying, Saul is, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias, you, come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard, you know, horrible things about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who invoke your name, which you know I do. And this is the part we have to remember, that God's plans are bigger than our fears. Will you read that with me? God's plans are bigger than our fears. You see, if you think the Lord is calling you to do something that you're already planning to do, that's not a call. A call is something that when you hear it, you go, no way. And then the Lord makes a way for your call. God's plans are bigger than our fears, and God chooses people we would not. Say that with me. God chooses people we would not. Now, if you were to ask any of the Christians in Damascus, any of the Christians in Jerusalem, any Christian anywhere in the world, they would say, now who do you think the Lord's going to pick to bring out the salvation of the world? Paul was not on that list. Paul was the last person on anybody's list. He was the antithesis to the list. He didn't even make the interview for the list. He was on the other team. He was the other side. He was the holy other. And friends, here's the thing about Jesus that you have to get right. We have to get this right. There is no other with Jesus. There is no other with Jesus. Not even Paul. Not even someone who used to murder his people. See, God chooses people we would not. So the Lord says to him, go. He doesn't argue with him. He just tells him, go. For he's an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. And by the way, I've completely suited him to do it with his background and upbringing. So God sends Ananias so that Saul might be filled with the Holy Spirit. It takes another believer to be courageous so that Saul, now Paul, can be filled with God. That God would come and live and breathe and move in him. And so Ananias went and he enters the house. He's so courageous. Once you see what, what danger that would be. And he laid his hands on Saul and he said, Brother Saul, are you kidding me, Brother Saul? I mean, that tells you all you need to know, really. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's courage, friends. That's a call. I don't think we would have ever heard Saul or Paul's name without Ananias. Someone had to go the transformation of the world. Gamaliel, Ananias, his family, the culture. Now you may say, come on now, this is, this is the suburbs. We don't do stoning and big stuff like that. You know, we're lucky to edge our lawn, right? So your call may not be, you know, going to a murderer uh, and transforming the world. It might be, uh, but it might not be. Your call um, might be smaller, now, here's the thing that I think about Ananias. I don't have any reason uh, to believe this or not to believe this. Ananias isn't mentioned anywhere else in the entire Bible, not this Ananias. And so here's what I think, though, and this, this is true in my own life. God calls us to little things, and then God calls us to little bigger things, and then he calls us to some medium-sized things, and he grows us in our faith until that. I don't think that was the first time Ananias had ever talked to the Lord. Do you? I don't think you go from zero to that. And so the Lord may just be calling you to start where you are, wherever that might be. It could be big, it could be small, but we are all called to something. And I want to show you the result of faithfulness. This is what it looks like, and that is a changed soul to Paul. 
In Acts 9, it says this, And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized in that moment. He, it didn't take him nine months of confirmation. It didn't take him a huge Bible study. The Lord had come and visited him, and he gave his life to Jesus right then, right there. Largely because of what Ananias had done. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus, where he had intended to go, but it was all different now. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. The very one he had persecuted, he is now lifting up. And he is saying, he is the son of God. That's what change looks like. All who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem among those who invoked his name? And has he not come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? They thought it was a setup. And Saul became increasingly more powerful and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was Messiah. Now, how could he prove that Jesus was Messiah? Because he was a Pharisee. He knew the law forwards and backwards. And he could see clearly now exactly who Jesus was, that he was who he said he was all along, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And the world began to change because God chose someone that none of us would have picked. He might be picking you. What might the world be like? So Paul is baptized that same day, friends, that same day. You see, when God calls us, the, the wise move, the smart move is to get on board as fast as you can because that's how we are changed and the world is changed. But we also, at times, want to think that when that one time happens, when that baptism happens, when we give our life to that first time, that everything is perfect, everything is great. No, 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 no. What's easy to miss as you read this story is that immediately after his baptism, after he preached in Damascus, he then leaves for three years to the Arabian desert. He goes out into the wilderness. In the same way that when Jesus was baptized, he went 40 days, 40 nights in the wilderness, Paul goes for three years out into the Arabian desert. And what did Paul get for this miraculous transformation, for this, this mind-blowing thing that happened to him where he was one way and then he was the other? He had to figure out his theology. He had to figure out what he believed about Jesus, what he believed about God, and what he was going to do with this revelation. And the scripture says this, after some time had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. These one that wanted to persecute the way, they were still doing that. And now he wasn't on their team anymore, so they needed to kill him as a traitor. And they were watching the gates day and night so that they might kill him. But his disciples, those now following him in the way of Jesus, they took him by night and they let him down through an opening in the wall, luring him in a basket. In the same way that God saved Moses in a little basket, we see Paul being saved by his Jesus followers now in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem all the way back down from Damascus, he attempted to join the disciples, those who were following Jesus, and they didn't want to have anything to do with them. They were afraid of him. They had known about the story of Stephen, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. And isn't, isn't this true? That sometimes we have made changes. We say we're going to live this way, and our family's like, oh, yeah, right, we'll see. It's a slow change, friends. People aren't going to just hop on board with your new life. It can be very difficult. And so let's go back to the map for a second. I want, I want you to see that he is in Tarsus. He goes all the way to Jerusalem for his training. He goes to Damascus. He then is changed there. He goes out into the Arabian uh, wilderness, uh, which would be to the right of there, and then back to Tarsus. He actually moves home with mom and dad, and he goes into the family business, and he is there for years. The persecutor of the church is now leading Jews and Gentiles and following the Jesus, the Son of God, but the disciples don't want to have anything to do with him. No one wants to touch him. No one wants to be around him. He goes home. And when he wants to have an audience with the disciples, they don't want to have anything to do with them. And enters a man named Barnabas, the son of encouragement. He actually travels 
up to Tarsus to get Paul and to say, Paul, what are you doing? You have a call on your life. God has called you for more than this. Come on. And he says, the disciples won't meet with me. And Barnabas says, I'll vouch for you. They trust me. And so Barnabas is the one that introduces Paul to Peter, Paul to the disciples. It takes another person, another person of encouragement for the transformation of the world. Gamaliel, Ananias, Barnabas. And so the question for us, friends, is this. Here's your action step. How will you listen for the call of the Spirit today? Whose Barnabas will you be? Who will you encourage today? Who will you invite to church? Who will you invite to your small group? Who will you pray for today? How will you listen for the call of the Spirit today? Give yourself some time to to hear that. For Paul, it took three years to figure that out. Hopefully, we'll be a little quicker, but it's in God's time. And when God does call you, say yes. With all I am, I want to encourage you to say yes. Yes to God. Yes to what he's doing. Because that's where the transformation happens. This is where the good stuff of life happens when you say yes to God. And you, and you may feel like Saul, like, you can't choose me. I, you know, I'm a bad guy. No, 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 no. God chooses who God chooses. And he chooses you. He chooses all his children. And so here's the question. Who is God calling you to? Now, I highlight who here because so often when people talk to me about, particularly around their vocation, they want to ask me, Pastor Mark, what does God want me to do? That's not the question. You see, ours is a relational faith. The question is, who is God calling you to? You see, Ananias was called to Paul. Paul was called to the people of Damascus. The Lord changed that. Barnabas was called to Saul and Paul. You are called to someone, not just something. So I want you in your prayer time this week to ask God, who are you calling me to? Who, not what? Who are you calling me to? To bless, to encourage, or to be encouraged by. Your calling has to do with a who. And his first name is Jesus. And for the rest of us, it might be someone else that we are to reach out in his name. Amen?